Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. I had to make changes to the show, emergency changes to the show, because there's simply no time to do a full Yannick Sinner report card. It would be crazy. There are There's way too much going on. Nadal just lost to Zverev. Team beat Federer. Uh, Pass beat Medvedev for the first time in his sixth try. It would be absolutely wild to do a full Yannick Sinner report card on this Monday. So I scrapped it. However, I am confident that in the near future, Sinner will win another big title, and I'll get into that more in depth shortly. And when that happens, we will get the Yannick Sinner report card. And it will be more accurate, as a matter of fact. So instead, I'm going to talk about Sinner. I'm going to give you my initial impressions of his game and talk a bit about the Demonor match where he executed his game plan brilliantly and has what turns out to be a perfect weapon for beating Alex Demonor. Uh, I'll get into that. But then we're going to move on fairly quickly and talk about the three next, uh, or excuse me, ATP Finals matches that occurred. Uh, sorry to leave out Djokovic. That's the one match that I haven't been able to catch. But my understanding is that Djokovic returned 90% of his, of uh, Berrettini's serves, which on this surface is insane. Uh, my understanding is also that Berrettini was not going to his backhand slice very often, which is not smart. And uh, if uh, it's, it's not very surprising that if Djokovic had an incredible returning uh, day, which it sounds like he had, that he would uh, blow Berrettini out of the water. Espresso for the Italian Yannick Sinner. It's only fitting. There's the thumbnail. Uh, it was good to hear, before I get started, it was it was good to hear from the uh, Gil is awful at predictions crowd after my uh, Saturday power rankings video. I haven't heard from you guys in a while. Uh, that was That was good because, you know, I, you couldn't really say anything after Shanghai getting the final right, three out of four semifinalists and the champion, and then couldn't really say anything about Paris getting Djokovic, the champion, correct, and having Shapovalov as a dark horse. And then you couldn't really say anything about the next-gen finals when I got the Sinner-Demonor final correct. So it was good to hear from you guys again. 
um, after my number eight Dominic team beat my uh, pick to win it, Roger Federer. And I'll, I'll talk, uh, once we get to the comment response, I'll talk about how I've adjusted my thinking when it comes to Federer, when it comes to team for the rest of uh, this ATP Finals. But uh, I just wanted to to say that I, I missed that that crowd because, uh, you know, you guys have been a little bit quiet. I haven't heard that I can't make any correct predictions. It's been a while since I've heard that, so uh, I missed it. Okay, uh, Demon or Sinner. Sinner. Uh, this is the one thing that stood out to me. Not the one thing. I shouldn't say the one thing. More than one thing stood out to me. Here's, I think, the, the key to the match was Sinner's return. Demonor, I would put it, I would say Demonor has two weaknesses, two glaring weaknesses. His power, not very powerful, off the ground. Two would be his second serve, attackable. Attackable second serve. Turns out, not only could Sinner absolutely clobber Demonor's second serve, when Demonor missed his spot on his first serve, Sinner could punish him for that as well. The aggressive returning was astonishing, and you don't see it very often in the men's game. You actually see it more often in the women's game when it comes to creating offense immediately off the return, especially the second serve return. And the second serve tends to not be quite as big, or it, it isn't as big in the women's game, and that might you know enable some uh, some of the players on on the WTA tour to attack it more often than the men attack the second serve. But this kind of reminded me of almost like a Maria Sharapova, Serena Williams-esque second serve return strategy implemented in the men's game by Yannick Sinner. And this is a great way to counter Demonor's speed and Demonor's defense. I'll get into why. So first of all, uh, this is Love 30 in the first set, and I'm pretty sure this is a... I think both of these points I'm about to show you are second serves, but again, I want to I also point out that Sinner was able to do serious damage off the first serve return as well, but uh, Demonor misses his spot here, and as you can see, Sinner is not stretched out. It's really right in his wheelhouse on the forehand side. Most of Demonor's serves were going to Sinner's backhand, and I would say that Sinner's backhand return is more dangerous than his forehand return. So I think this was kind of, let's mix it up and let's serve to his forehand. Let's go out wide on the deuce side. But it was way too central. It's right in Sinner's wheelhouse, and he absolutely clobbers. I mean, he hits the cover off this forehand. And as you can see, Demonor... It's really tough for him to react to it. Sinner's, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to show pace in screenshots because we talk about the different ways to attack. I talk about the different ways to attack all the time. And generally, it tends to be talking about depth and width and height because that's quite easy to show when I'm when I'm showing you screenshots on YouTube. And I can't show the video for, for those who don't know because I, I run the risk of getting these videos taken down if I play video on them. And sometimes I get that, so just to clear that up, that's why I can't show video. It's hard to show pace on screenshots, but you can tell just by the way 
just by the way Demon Ore reacts to this shot, that it's such a rope, Demon Ore doesn't really have time to move his feet to it. And he tries to pick it up off the half volley, and it's going to fly long. This is Sinner beating Demon Ore for pace. Now, it's very hard to recover after the serve. It's very hard to defend after the serve because of the nature of how you land on your left foot. And, well, essentially, you have very little time because of how how hard your uh, outgoing ball is, how fast your outgoing ball is, and also the mechanics of having to land on your left foot and then generally jump back and, and get ready to split step. You're also inside the court after you serve, which is not an ideal place to defend. But you take away Demonor's speed. You take away his wheels if you're trying to beat him off the serve and also if you're beating him off pace. Wouldn't that be the best way to attack him? Hard at his feet if you can attack his second serve. And that's what Sinner was able to do. Here's the next point. At love 40. This time it goes to Sinner's backhand. And again, it's... You know, this is probably a better second serve because it's got some depth. But Sinner's going to stand tall, hit through this backhand. And Demonor is there. But... Again, this ball was smoked, and Demonor just can't handle it. If you can see the ball, it's floating towards where it says Milano. It's not even close. It's too much pace for Alex Demonor to handle. Right off the second serve, right off the serve, Sinner just going after the return. That's what he was able to do time and time again. If not, a 1-2. It's not that he necessarily won the point off the first shot. But he could almost play first strike tennis off the return. I guess that would be second strike tennis because it's the second ground stroke of the rally. But make Demonor hit a half volley or do damage off the return and then hit a winner on the next shot. Sinner has scary, scary, scary power. He, his ability to hit his two-hander with pace is something that probably hasn't existed on the tour since Andre Agassi. And that is a very strong statement. That is the kind of statement where people kind of pause and, you know, probably might be inclined to say Gil's going crazy, he's overreacting. But I'm pretty confident in saying no two-hander has been able to hit a backhand this big since Andre Agassi. Because, I mean, the best backhands in the world, Djokovic, Murray, they are not this big. They are not as big as Yannick Sinner's backhand. And the, the discipline he has on the cross-court rallies on his backhand, the way he's able to, to play cross-courts and lines, this is the, the anatomy of the average baseline rally on tour is trade cross-court, wait for the short ball, change down the line. And the way Sinner's actually displayed patience and consistency but heaviness rallying cross-court and then able to recognize the short ball and change down the line, and he has this 
effortless power when he changes backhand down the line. He's so calm and so comfortable hitting that shot. I mean, this is a guy who has a weapon in his backhand, which he will be able to use and leverage on 95% of the tour. On that cross-court backhand rally, Sinner will have the edge against 95% of the ATP tour. He will own the backhand-to-backhand exchanges because he will be stronger in the cross-court trading and he will be lethal changing down the line and attacking. And it's not that his forehand isn't any good, but but guess what? There's a lot of really good forehands on tour. His forehand might be as good as his backhand as a shot in general. Like if you just take the raw effects of his forehand, it's about as good as his backhand. But guess what? A lot of players hit their forehand like that. So if you're looking at a cross-court rally forehand to forehand, two players trading and waiting for their chance to attack in a neutral baseline rally, Sinner, as good as his forehand is, is not going to have that incredible edge on most players. The backhand, there are not a lot of players who are going to be able to hang. It is an incredible advantage that we can expect to see Yannick Sinner use to do some serious damage on tour. He was serving it at a very high level against Demonor. A lot of clutch serving with his back against the wall. Whenever there was break points, deciding points, it seemed like Sinner was was able to break out a big first serve. And that was a large part of why he was able to handle Alex Demonor so easily. Um, In large part, it was the returning. I want to hit on one thing about... The difference between how having a big two-hander and having a big one-hander. Because notice I made that distinction. I said there hasn't been a bigger two-hander since Andre Agassi. Because the biggest backhands on tour, if you measure RPM, if you measure miles per hour, the biggest backhands on tour, they're, they're one-handers. It's Dominic Thiem. Stan Wawrinka. Those are the biggest backhands on tour. They're not two-handers. Well, what Sinner does on return, creating offense straight away off his return, that is a product of two-hander-ism. <laughs> That's a product of him having a two-hander. The way he's able, because it's a shorter stroke, it's more compact, and it's more stable. So it doesn't take as long. The, the take back is inherently shorter on the two-hander, and it's a little bit more stable at the point of contact. Best backhand returns ever, Agassi, Murray, Djokovic, two-handers. Sinner, Sinner's return reminds me of Andre Agassi's. Why? Well, it's not the defensive return that Murray or Djokovic has. It's an offensive weapon. He can hurt you straight away off the backhand return. The forehand's massive too. Just a big hitter. A massive ball striker. Last thing on center. He's 18. He's skinny. What's going to happen when he puts some muscle on? Especially in his legs. 
What's going to happen? How big is he going to hit the ball? It's scary. It's very scary. I'm high on Yannick Sinner. I'm high on him. Let us move now to the comments. Um, I'm going to show you a couple comments at once. This is my this is my brilliant plan to make sure you guys uh, stay with me. I'm going to tease all the comments. Look at the last one. You know you want to stay till the end when people are asking what YouTube ten what tennis YouTube channels I watch. Okay, the top comment comes from Sunflowers of Infer Inferno. Do you still think Federer has a chance at the title now that he has lost to probably the least favorite player for the title? So, I mean, yes, in my power rankings, team was last. Certainly, it looks like Berrettini should be last. But uh, I want to address where I stand on Federer, and then I'll address where I stand on team. Then I'll talk a bit about their matches. Um. So first of all, Federer will need to beat Djokovic to reach the semifinals. You can't lose twice. You play three players. You got to win two matches to make the semifinals of this tournament, and that means that Federer will need to beat Djokovic. And it's the next match. I believe it's it's his next match. Um, you have to be crazy to favor Federer in that match. Looking at how Federer played against Dominic Team, looking, and although I, I didn't see the match, judging by how Djokovic looked against Matteo Berrettini, or the results, which are somewhat unreliable, as I'll get into, but um, Federer did not carry over what he showed in Basel. The sharpness was not there. He was not putting balls in the court because the very thing that impressed me in Basel, which was his footwork and how on the ball his reactions were and how well he was getting in position for each shot, uh, how he was able to move laterally and how he was able to move um, up to balls. The very thing that looked so good in Basel was the very thing that really fell flat in his match against team. So I don't favor Federer to beat Djokovic in the group stage. And he just was not, he did not carry out the same level, plain and simple. Now, Dominic team. Uh, I'm still not convinced that that team can really win this. Uh, and in saying that, I want to just reiterate that there's a really major difference between the U.S. Open and Indian Wells and Canada and, I mean, I'm not going to – and Miami. There's a really big difference between those hardcore tournaments and this tournament. So this has nothing to do with – how good a chance I see team uh, or, or how much I see team's improvement on hard courts, which I've said time and time again, he's volleying better. He's returning better. His court position is better. These courts are different. 
than those courts. And I still don't see him as a contender in these conditions at the moment. I see him as a contender on hard courts. I really do. But I don't think this is his court. And I still think that uh, after the Federer match. The best I've ever seen team return. That was the Federer match. The first round. The best I've ever seen team return. Getting a little bit redundant here with the Sinner return and the Djokovic return and the team return. But believe me, all of these, these are just great returning performances. And if you look at the games that Dominic team broke Roger Federer, if you look at the game at five all in the first set, if you look at the game at five all in the second set, Federer was hitting half volleys off of most of team's returns. Federer was hitting half volleys in most of the points that he lost. The depth on team's returns were impeccable, and he never moved back. As far as I saw, he never moved back on the return. He always stayed up. And especially on his forehand, his returning was at a way higher level than I've ever seen it. Team's return looks like it is just making leaps and bounds improvements. When it comes to, to Federer, I just felt like the reactions and his footwork off of his first ball were off. There were so many errors that came first ball off his serve. And a lot of that was team's quality of return. But if you're Federer at the same time, you got, you got to try to make the next ball at least in the court. And Federer wasn't doing that. He didn't have a very good, he didn't have play a very good match at the net either. His forehand was very imprecise. And there's such a massive power deficit between Federer and team that the key with Federer, if he wants to have success in this matchup, the key is that he's going to be more precise than team, that he's going to have better depth and he's going to play closer to the lines, and he's going to keep team at bay in a position where he can't take full swings at the ball. He's going to keep team uh, moving and on the stretch, and that's where Federer can, can have the upper hand in these rallies. But when Federer is dropping the ball in the middle of the court, when the ball's going short, when he's not hitting it with depth, when he's not playing with the kind of confidence uh, that can enable him to hit close to the lines. Well, now we're going to see team's power come out. And it is so much, it's such a big advantage that he has over Federer. Now team has beaten Federer on three different surfaces this year. He's beaten him on, on grass, hardcourt, and clay. Team should beat Federer on clay every time. He's a better clay court play, player than Federer right now. As good as Federer is on clay, team's better. But an Indian Wells is also conditions that I consider pretty good for Dominic Team. But the fact that Team has beaten Federer on grass, the fact that now he beats him in straight sets at the 0-2, I do think that Team is in Federer's head a bit. I I feel like Federer has not brought his best against Team. He's having a lot. He has a lot of trouble reading Team's forehand. I constantly feel like Federer's leaning the wrong direction off of Team's forehand, and uh, normally that's a little bit sharper. 
from Roger Federer, and I feel like his power, team's power, is psyching out Federer. He's having a lot of trouble. Federer is not clear-headed right now when he's facing Dominic Team, and Team has his number officially. Officially, Team has Federer's number. The Djokovic match will be will be telling. How well does Federer play against Djokovic? Because if he plays really well against Djokovic, you got to start to think about Team as a matchup, not only tactically but psychologically, because Team has had tons of success. I believe it's a 5-2 advantage head-to-head over Roger Federer. That's another thing to keep in mind. Maybe that bodes well for for Federer's chances because team does appear to be uh, a foil and a bad matchup for, for Federer. And before I move on to the next comment, I want to address um, p- predictions. Uh, in general. Well, first of all, th- these players are so close. They're within eight ranking spots of each other. Imagine if it was 20 through 28. Imagine how much variation there would be. Now, the second thing is, and I want to make this point because of what's happened today, Zverev beat Nadal. That was a 0-5, a 5-0 head-to-head coming in in favor of Rafa. Tsitsipas beat Medvedev. That was a 5-0 head-to-head in favor of Medvedev. If you predict tennis based on past results, first of all, anyone in the world can do that. Second of all, you're not going to do very well. You will get the most predictable of predictions correct. You will. You pick Nadal to win the French Open every year. You've been very successful. You've been very successful. But for the most part, unexpected things tend to happen sometimes. And if you are constantly looking towards past results as the answer for what is going to happen in the future, you are very regularly going to miss the mark. All I'll say. Just a general statement and uh, and the the reason I the reason I feel compelled to say it is because in in reading comments it seems that it seems that a lot of people fall into this. Alex James Tsitsipas has finally beaten Medvedev. Break down how he did it and what he did differently. Did Medvedev just have a bad day at the office? All right, Tsitsipas Medvedev. This was interesting. So a couple things. Tsitsipas did some things really well and better than, than, than usual. And Medvedev also did uh, one thing in particular somewhat poorly. Uh, the MVP of the match was Tsitsipas's forehand, which was incredibly reliable. Key word here is the word I used, reliable. Because there's a lot of things that Tsitsipas's forehand is. Powerful, produces incredible angles, it's precise, um... It is, he's got a good feel for it um, and can, can, can use it in, in a lot of different ways. One thing it's not always is, reliable. It's not always reliable. But the forehand never, it was always there throughout this entire match for Tsitsipas when he needed it. And there were no key, really key errors that come to mind off that wing. 
and that was the biggest weapon that that always will be pretty much the biggest weapon on the court unless Medvedev's having a, gr- a brilliant serving day that will probably be the biggest weapon on the court when these two meet Tsitsipas was able to to find paths towards ending points winning points with his forehand and he dominated points under uh he dominated the quick points the first strike tennis which is going to be the how most points are played on a surface this quick. The other thing for Tsitsipas was he was getting to the net very, very, very regularly. I believe he was 22 for 26 at the net, and this has been a common thread in most of Tsitsipas's best performances. He lives at the net, he has great approach shots off of his forehand wing, and he's able to take any short ball he gets off his forehand, hit a great approach shot, and come to net. And it's really hard to defend. It's really hard to finish, to finish points. I still think that Medvedev's passing shots are good, not great. I still think that what, unless Medvedev's in a position where he's really feeling it and he's redlining, and God knows we've seen that before, I still feel like... Um, the, the passing shots is one area where you can exploit Daniil Medvedev. So Tsitsipas was able to play great in the midcourt and finish most rallies. Now here's something from Medvedev. In the first set tiebreak, there was a couple forehands where I felt like he pulled the trigger too early. And he didn't have the signature patience that we often see from the Russian. And Tsitsipas was able to match him in patience. That's uncharacteristic for Medvedev. You don't often see that for Medvedev. Going too big on the forehand is what he did before he started having great results. Making errors prematurely because he tries to slap a forehand winner when he really shouldn't, that's what he was doing before he was getting great results. So a bit of a relapse in shot selection for Medvedev. Tsitsipas getting the net, great forehand day. Uh, some some really clutch returning as well, but mostly mostly forehand volleys, patience were the keys to the match. Sap save. Could you do a quick breakdown of the Zverev Nadal match? What happened? Was it Zverev playing out of the world, or did Rafa stumble a bit? I didn't get to see the match. Uh, would be great to know. So, the first thing is I want to address Nadal's health. Nadal, to me, looked healthy and rusty. Healthy because the serve was pretty big. High 120s at time, at times for Nadal, serving as, as hard as we've seen him serve. So the, the abdomen appears to be healed. It appears to be fine. Maybe did it bother his movement a little bit? Did he look a bit slow? Well, I think that I think that the court speed will make Nadal look slow, even when maybe he's not entirely hampered with the movement. I think sometimes the way the court, the the way the way the ball skids off the court, I think it can make Nadal look a little bit slow. Absorption of pace is way worse for Rafa on quicker surfaces. Always, always way worse for Rafa on a quicker surface. 
And I felt like the the biggest place where I saw Nadal's rust play out is his forehand. Normally, if you leave a ball in the middle of the court against Nadal, night night, lights out, game over, point over. Nadal Nadal's forehand, the weapon that it's become, if you leave it if you leave the ball in the middle, you're gonna lose the point. It's almost automatic. But Zverev didn't pay when he left balls in the middle. He got to stay in the rally. He got a second chance, a third chance, maybe a fourth chance, where if Nadal had his timing, the point would be over. Nadal's backhand struggled in the first set. The forehand, and then and then he, he started to hit it better in the second. The forehand was never there. The t timing was never there with the forehand. It was the worst I've seen him hit his forehand probably since 2016. I think it was the worst I've seen him for. Because it really was not good. It looked extremely rusty on the forehand. Serve looked fine. Forehand did not. I think it's rust. I think it's lack of practice. Now, Zverev did a lot of good things. Zverev was serving really big again. He wasn't serving high 130s like he did last year, which, again, I've never seen him do. He wasn't up there, but he was still... His serve was still a problem for Nadal, his first serve. It was very big. And his forehand, he was hitting it really well. The backhand is always a consistent shot. He always keeps it deep. He, it's a it's it's strong. It's consistent, but the forehand is a shot that can be hit or miss. That he can hit too loopy with too much shape, which sometimes he's not comfortable uh, attacking with. Zverev was comfortable attacking with his forehand, and he was very comfortable changing down the line with his forehand, which he did quite well. That pretty much sums up my thoughts on Zverev Nadal. A nice transition to the next question. Abor Valahanov says, if Nadal loses one game in the, group in the group stage, will he leave the tournament? I don't think that Nadal believes that he can beat Novak in London. So I don't think Nadal would really have uh, all that much belief either in this scenario. But I do think that Nadal looked healthy, and I don't think he's going to withdraw We'll see what happens. A lot of people think he should, but again, he looked rusty to me. He did not look hurt to me. He looked rusty. And I think maybe if this were an ordinary tournament that he didn't care about, he'd spend another week on the practice court instead of coming back. But clearly, he wants to give this his best shot. He wants to try to challenge Djokovic in finishing year number one and doing what he can to end the year number year end number one. I do think this matters to both competitors. And I do think it's important. I think it's an important record to have that that you had the best season. Year year end number one is valuable. I think both players value it. I think Nadal's gonna give it his all because I think he, uh, he is healthy. Thomas Brunkel asks which tennis YouTube channels do you watch? I do not watch any tennis YouTube channels. I swear I do not. Uh, I do watch some other YouTube channels, and I'll tell you which other YouTube channels I watch. Now, in terms of, of 
my my life in general. When I'm watching tennis, I'm I'm just I just watch tennis matches. I mean, I do not have time really. I'm very busy. I do not have time <laughs> to watch. Like, if I'm going to f- watch tennis, I'm going to be watching match footage. That's most useful for me. That's gonna make me. That's gonna make me do this show to the best of my ability. There are no tennis YouTube channels that I feel like are going to improve this content quite like watching matches will improve this content. And God knows I am always behind on matches that I could be watching. So I'm constantly on the on-demand section, tennis TV, catching up on matches I missed live all the time. When it comes to YouTube, I don't go to YouTube for my tennis. I go to uh, YouTube for for MMA. I'm a, an Ariel Hawani fan. I'm a Luke Thomas fan. And Luke Thomas is an MMA YouTuber. He's more than a YouTuber. He also has some other roles. But uh, he, he has quite an influence on this channel and what I do. That's one. Uh, Anthony Fantano, I watch his music reviews. Uh, I do enjoy his music reviews. And uh, I, I am a fan of, of music. Mainly the, the new music I listen to is mostly hip-hop. Uh, let's see. If I'm going to give you a favorite artist, I have to go with Anderson Pack. So, and then he's also someone, I'd say there's a little bit of influence there with Anthony Fantano and how he reviews music versus how I review matches. I think there's similarities there. He, he knows more than, he certainly um, goes in a lot of depth when it comes to his music reviews. So those are two YouTubers I watch. I'd say Luke Thomas, Anthony Fantano. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Until next time. I'm going to try to have some uh, some midweek content because it's uh, th- this is a fun time. It's very digestible, this tournament. Two matches a day, one in the morning, one at night. It's a beautiful thing. So I hope you enjoyed. I will see you later this week. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.